Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. And if you guys would, just bow your heads with me once more before we dive into the text that Johnny just read for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for the rhythm of church, where each morning as we wake up to eat food and are reminded of our frailty each Sunday, we come to church and are reminded of who we are in you and what we need, how Christ has provided it, and how we are to live in our world um, so that people might see and savor your goodness and glory. Be with us today as we look at the challenges of life in a broken world. We pray that you might draw near to us. Pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, So for those of you who were with us last week, we began uh, looking at Proverbs chapter 24. And we've been working through Proverbs since October uh, earlier, or this past year. And Proverbs 24 is a whole chapter that has a similar theme. And that theme is it assumes a trial. It assumes a conflict. And what is that trial or conflict? It's other people. Last week we saw that it's difficult and dangerous to love people as the Bible calls us to love people if we are not filled uh, with the Spirit of God through faith, which gives us strength to move towards others and gives us wisdom to care for them in difficult and dangerous ways. God calls us to reach to those who are falling away from the faith, and it's the Spirit of Christ that compels us to do that. In other words, last week we saw a hope that moves us towards others, and this week we are going to see a hope in the midst of others. That is hope for those who are simultaneously sinners and sufferers. Proverbs 24 acknowledges something which theologians call the already and the not yet. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are already freed from the consequence of judgment our sin deserved. Christ has taken our death. We were enemies of God, and now we are friends of God. And we are not yet, though, free from sinning. Even with the help of the Holy Spirit, we wrestle with temptation. We give in to sinful tendencies. For those who have faith in our resurrected Lord, we have hope of a new world wherein looking into our brokenness, God promises to finally put all of the pieces back in place. A world where all things are perfect and safe according to King Jesus. And yet, we are not yet in that world. We're in a world where we feel brokenness, even though we see glimpses of what will come in marriage and in the church and in godly relationships and in nature. And to forget that even inside of faith in Jesus Christ, we're still sinners, is to quickly become legalistic or hypocritical or frustrated when you encounter sin in your own life. To forget that we are sufferers, even though Jesus has promised for us a better world, is to quickly become disheartened, doubtful, or caught off guard when following Jesus is hard and difficult. But Solomon here today speaks to us as sinners and to sufferers so that we might have hope. Hope that you might not want to sin against others and hope when others willingly sin against you. And the picture we're going to see today in this back half of Proverbs 24 is this. That is that the fear of the Lord keeps us and comforts us in the face of wickedness. 
To put it another way, it's the fear of the Lord, this reliance on God which keeps us from pursuing wickedness and comforts us when people act wickedly towards us. And the text today, Proverbs 24, is coming at the the end of this section called The Words of the Wise, where Solomon is speaking to us again as his children. And this text is primarily a plea that you would not pursue wickedness. But secondly, we see that it is also comfort for those who are experiencing wickedness. And so we're going to look at this passage from both sides of that coin. And first, we're going to see a warning. We're going to see that we do not pursue wickedness, for you will lose hope. That's the warning of this text. Don't pursue wickedness, for you'll lose hope. But then we're going to see a comfort, and that is don't lose hope because of those who pursue wickedness. With that said, I'm going to read our passage for us once more, and then we're going to dive in. So this is Proverbs 24, verses 15 through 22. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased. And turn away his anger from him. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them. And who knows the ruin that will come from them both. And so it's really clear if you look, if you have your Bibles open and you look at the last verse of Proverbs 24, which we just read, and the first verse of Proverbs 24, which we looked at last week, that Solomon is warning us as his children not to desire, to want, to envy wickedness and evil. Now, it's important to note that all sin, every sin you ever do, whether it's only in your thought or in your heart or in your actions, all sin is first and foremost against God who is holy. David helps us see that in his own sin. And yet, when Proverbs talks about categories of wickedness and categories of evil, it acknowledges its Godward direction, but it also assumes that we are doing those things towards others around us. It assumes not only that we are sinning against God and how we think and how we act, but our actions are harmful to those around us. If you go through Proverbs and you look at how the wicked and the evil are described, they are the violent people, the deceptive people, the lying people, the arrogant people, the manipulative people, the oppressive people, the abusive people. And in this way, God wants to actually give us, right? This is written for us. The Holy Spirit has inspired this for us. He wants to give us a window into parts of our heart that we are probably uncomfortable thinking about. You see, most of us, even our non-Christian friends or coworkers, are probably quick to admit that they have some sort of fault in their heart when it comes to some sort of objective, moral, or spiritual norm. In other words, most people, if they were to stand before God, whether they believe in it or they're accepting it as a hypothetical, say that God will probably look at my heart and say, yeah, you're not perfect. We could have done things better. We could have been more loving. We could have been more faithful. We could have been more honest. But while we're quick to say that we have perhaps been wicked towards God, we're generally slow to say that we're, we've been wicked towards others. 
We look at how Proverbs speaks of the wicked and evil person as someone very aggressive towards their community, and we say we don't necessarily match up to that. We generally want to be kind and not oppressive. We generally want to extend love and be good neighbors and faithful employees, which means we have a tendency when we encounter passages like this to be really quick to say, I don't struggle with this, and to move on. But God wants you here to soberly examine your heart in light of its desires for wickedness and envy. It might be that perhaps you're more prone to act that way, to think that way, to desire that way than you would initially think. Twice, just in this chapter, he warns of desire to do wicked, an envy an inordinate want to pursue evil against others. In other words, despite the rosy view we might have of our hearts, there might be times in your life where you find your heart desiring to do those things. And when that happens, what will you say to yourself and how will you act? And this is our first point today. Don't pursue wickedness for you will lose hope. Solomon here assumes this. Like a good dad, he looks into our heart and he says, don't do it. You're gonna lose hope. There are gonna be times where you desire it, where it seems the only hope, the only joy, the only satisfaction that comes is if you act on those desires. And he says, don't believe it. Sinning against others for your own joy will never work out. And he warns us in this text quickly of three wicked postures. He warns us of wicked actions wicked affections, and wicked envy. We see our first warning against wicked action in Proverbs 24, 15 through 16. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do no violence to his home, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So there's a TV show um, on CBS called Criminal Minds. I've never watched it, but it's on all the time when I'm watching football, and I've kind of picked up the gist of what it is. And there's this team of agents, and they specialize in knowing how criminals think and act. And with that knowledge, they're able to imagine how they would respond and prevent it or stop it. Those of you who watch it might know how that actually plays out in the script but here, what TV tries to do by fantasy, God does in reality, and that is that he brings us into the mind of the wicked person. That's the beauty of Proverbs. And here we see the wicked lie in wait against the righteous, or what it literally says, they lurk. The wicked is this lurker in the shadows, watching, scoping, observing, for what purpose? To do violence to the righteous, to cause harm to his home to take from that individual the good they see without any regard to whether the righteous live or whether they die. And again, we might look at this, we're not lurking outside of our neighbor's houses, we're not desiring to do violence to their home, and we might think, who thinks this way? But do you guys know that the news exists? <laughs> and have you considered the kind of things that happen in our world. How many times have we read of premeditated assaults and robberies? How many times have we seen people who are victims or witnesses of a crime 
be bullied and threatened by the perpetrators so as to keep them from the witness stand? How many times do we read of of women assaulted in the workplace only to be forced to sign a non-disclosure act or lose their jobs? How many times do we see that man who had that outburst of violence or robbed from the poor and they say something like, I don't know what came over me. We would love it if no one thought this way. But don't we see that many in our world do? And who's to say that that many isn't you? Well, Solomon is here to say, I want to help you with that. I want to help you not be this person. God wants to prepare you for the challenge and the temptation of wicked desires by showing you two things. First, the resilience of the righteous, and second, the certain demise of the wicked. He says the righteous man falls seven times. He is struck, he is wounded, but he rises again. He is resilient in the face of the hardships of this world. But the wicked are not so. The wicked stumble. That's all it takes. They just stumble in the day of calamity. And they have no hope. The righteous are promised a sort of resurrection, but the wicked are guaranteed to not survive because God himself is promising to defend the oppressor and to judge the perpetrator. Solomon's point to us who are quick to pass over this is to say, don't be this man. And if this is you, if you, whether it's here or whether it's throughout the week, you look at this text and you say, I have some serious issues here. I am prone to anger and manipulation and abuse and wicked tendencies. The wonderful thing is, is God didn't write this about another. He's not writing here about those, to, to his son about those wicked who are in the world. He's writing this to the son who will have the tendency of being wicked. The church is a safe place for us to bring the darkest, wickedest, evil things to light in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share that with others and to realize that even if you are this man, Christ became that man for you on the cross. Christ has paid the punishment of this brutal perversion of righteousness by becoming wicked for those who have faith in him on the cross. This is good news here. And Solomon warns against wicked action, but secondly, he warns against something far more common in our own hearts, and that is a warning against wicked affections. Read with me verses 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. What's really interesting here is that God shows that even when he rises up to judge those who do genuine wickedness, it is God who's causing the wicked to stumble. We see that when we look at Proverbs 24 as a whole. Even when he does that and he is repaying the wicked with their just desserts, God cares about your response to that judgment. When we think about God's judgment, that is a holy God who comes to punish punitively those who have sinned against him and sinned against others, we're generally prone to two errors, each of which play off of arrogance. That is, we either cringe or we gloat. Both fail to have an adequate view of God and his holiness and sin and its consequence. To those who cringe hearing about God's rising up in judgment, we kind of like are like, man, if that happened to me, I would probably handle it a different way. 
That's probably a little bit of an overreaction. To punish sin in that regard seems like you just lack the self-control and sobriety necessary to be God. Let me be God and we could solve this better. But in this text, he's not necessarily warning against those who are cringing at God's judgment. He's warning against those who are gloating in God's judgment. If you've ever been in a family, witnessed a family that has siblings, you've probably noticed conflict. In the midst of that conflict, there is the aggressor who sins against a child, and the child who sinned against cries and gets attention, brings the parent in to the drama that unfolded, and the parent then realizes that what happened was truly sinful, and they go to the kid who slugged their sister, and they pick them up, and they turn and walk away, and what so frequently does the, per- does the victim do? I have seen dispositions change miraculously in that moment. As they rejoice, they gloat, they celebrate that that person has now been caught. And in our modern Western world, don't we love to watch others fall? The entire YouTube economy of fail videos shows that. We love watching other people suffer for their foolishness and for their wickedness. We are voyeuristic in our desires to watch documentaries and listen to podcasts where those wicked people slowly unravel and just ruin their lives. This is the basis of cancel culture that we don't only shame people into oblivion because of the sobriety of what we think is culturally righteous, we shame people into oblivion so that we might say, told you so. Our hearts in our broken arrogance are prone to gloat when scripture calls us to be humble. But to be flippant about the judgment of the evildoer is to actually be flippant about your own salvation. Do you realize that in scripture we see this wonderful tension that only the cross solves where God rises up justly, righteously, and eagerly to judge and condemn those who stand apart from him. God is not ashamed of his judgment. And yet, it is not the will of God that any should perish. God doesn't gloat in his judgment. How much more should we not gloat in God's judgment? How much more does this text get at our own hearts and how we dream of those who have wronged us coming to a wonderful flaming crash and we say, you deserve it all, sucker. But this is of utmost importance to the God of judgment. You see, there's a difference between rejoicing in judgment with God and rejoicing in judgment as God. And we are so prone to do the latter, aren't we? We are so prone to think that their sin was only against us and as long as we get to watch them squirm under the weight of judgment, my life is good. The difference between 
the person who rejoices and gloats and is sinful and the person who rejoices and celebrates, which is right, is the posture of humility. Who looks at that person who is being judged for their wickedness and is able to say, apart from Jesus Christ, that would have been me. That there is nothing special about you. That even if you never wronged a single person and only walked old women across the street, your heart was just as wicked to the God of the universe. And apart from Jesus' atoning blood in your place, that would have been you. The posture God wants us to have in the face of judgment is a sober rejoicing that Christ has removed us from judgment, but also this reality that judgment still exists. How much does God care about this? Think about this. We're talking about wickedness and God here actually changes the camera lens. We are zoomed in. We are the lens that sees the harm done, but what does God do? He zooms out here in verse 18. He pans the camera and he looks at your heart. He says, if you do this, God sees it and is displeased with you. And what will he do? He will put his judgment of the wicked on pause. They're gonna get judged. God's not gonna, you know, remove judgment. But he pauses it and he comes and he addresses your heart. He addresses your wicked affections so that you might stand in awe of what God has done to save you in Jesus Christ. Consider the warning given earlier in Proverbs 16, verse 18. One of the most famous Proverbs you probably know. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Be careful how you delight in the promise of God's judgment. If it leads you to your own self-glorification, you ought to repent. But if it leads you to see Christ who was judged in your place, Christ who will one day set all things right, Christ who is, as we will see, the king who punishes and redeems, then we find ourselves safe before this God. And lastly, we see a warning, not only against action and affection, but against wicked envy. Verses 19 and 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. So we see the word fret here, and in our minds, we kind of tie that to anxiety. And it is anxiety. It is a word that's often translated anxiety, but the type of anxiety is a little different. It's not an anxiety driven by fear. It's an anxiety driven by want. In fact, there's a turn of phrase we use today that better brings out the weight of this Hebrew word and it's hot and bothered. It's literally, it literally almost reads that you shouldn't be hot and bothered about those who are doing evil and not be envious of the wicked. It is to be so agitated in your life that you see the wicked prospering and you say, I want it. I want it bad. I want to be outside of this suffering moment. I want to be outside of the victim role and I want what they have. And you burn with the desire for gain of the wicked. And again, Solomon knows, he knows that you don't wake up simply wanting to be wicked. If it were easy to gain the wicked's fruit by being righteous, we'd be in heaven. 
Solomon knows that you don't wake up wanting to be wicked, but he knows that your heart will want what the wicked have. Their perception of success and sexuality and fame and statue. And so here, what Solomon does is he points out their end. You want that? They have no future. You think they're so bright and radiant today? That lamp will be put out. To invest your envy in the rewards of wickedness is to have something that is here today and promised to be removed in the future. And we see how serious Solomon is. As you can almost feel, Solomon as the metaphorical father get down on his knee and take up the hand of his child and plead with them in verses 20 and 21 where he says this, my son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not join with those who do otherwise for disaster will arise suddenly from them and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. So here we see the root cause. How do the wicked become wicked? They don't go to evil genius school and come back. They're just the ones who do otherwise to the command to fear the Lord. They're the ones who refuse to see what God has done to save. And what does he say instead to not give way to wickedness? Fear the Lord. That is to see all of the affections you have for evil displaced by a greater affection. A greater reality that the Lord and his king, that is the Lord and the one who will execute all of his justice, that they will bring an end to those who do evil, that it will not prosper, it will not be for good. It might be sensationalized in Hollywood, but it will be devastating in your life. Why do we not pursue evil? Because the Lord will judge, the Lord will avenge, the Lord will bring to ruin, the Lord will cause justice to roll like a river over all who do evil, even the evil that is not seen by others. And this is good news for any of us who are sinners. All of us at one point have not feared the Lord, whether we acted in overt wickedness towards others or not. All of us have caused destruction. All of us have envied the wicked. Some of us have caused real harm to those who are around us. And if that's you, the king who has come to judge is also the king who has come to suffer in your place. This is what Jesus does for us on the cross. Jesus doesn't erase our wickedness. Do you realize that? We often think that when the most wicked criminal in the whole world repents and comes to Jesus that is just erased. Don't you kind of feel that when you watch these crime documentaries and at the end this person had this bedside conversion and you're like, well, that's lame. <laughs> I wanted them to feel the weight of all of that punishment. Do you realize that the weight of that punishment does get poured out on somebody? Jesus, the son of God, becomes that wicked person and pays every last drop of the cup of God's wrath towards that. That's how wonderful Jesus' redemption is. That's how you know it's freed. How do you know that record of debt no longer comes after you? Because it's not locked in a cage, it was nailed to a cross. It was born in the body of someone else for you. And what do you get with a savior like this? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it in such a simple way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus, that is him, we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus, those who are sinners 
are made righteous. If you've ever wondered if that's possible, here's the offer that this is for you, that Jesus wants you to have this freedom. Jesus wants to give this grace freely to all who believe. That is wonderful news. You are no longer counted among the wicked. You are counted among the righteous. Let's go. But now there's a problem. We've just changed places in Proverbs 24. We have removed ourselves from the category of the wicked who stand opposed to God, but now we've just become the righteous who stand opposed to the wicked. If you look back at Proverbs 24, we haven't escaped a problem. We've just transferred a problem. We are now the one who has violence done to us. We are now the one who have people lurk over us. We've gone from being the oppressor to being the oppressed, from the victimizer to the victim, from being the sinner to the sufferer. But it is far greater to suffer with Jesus than to suffer apart from him. Where our first warning was a warning to avoid wickedness because you'll lose hope, here Proverbs comes into our reality, a reality you know today, a reality where wickedness wages war against us. And he says this, our second point, don't lose hope because of those who pursue wickedness. You see, Proverbs assumes the wicked will not prosper, but it also assumes that the righteous will encounter trials from the wicked until the Lord brings his final judgment. And this is where we have hope not only as sinners, but we have hope as sufferers. Do you realize that the majority of the things Jesus said to his church was to equip them to suffer? To equip them for this reality, this side of heaven. Look at John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Mark chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The wonderful reality of redemption is that we are made righteous like Jesus. We are declared righteous like Jesus. The hard part of that reality is that means that a world which stands opposed to Jesus now stands opposed to you. But this is why in the midst of this war, Solomon says, fear the Lord. We've talked a lot about this theme in the book of Proverbs. And to fear the Lord, we've been using a definition that is just a reverent reliance upon the Lord. We must learn to reverently rely. Because when wickedness comes against you, we are faced with often two choices, aren't we? And that is to cave to wickedness, to either participate in it or to distance ourselves from the Lord, or we rely on the Lord. We count, as Paul did, everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And this proverb warns of the dangers of wickedness, but it also promises the relief of righteousness. The evil man has no future. But do you remember what we saw last week? The verses right before this text. Look at verse uh, 13 and 14 of Proverbs 24. My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. Those who pursue wickedness will be cut off, but those who cling to God's sweetness, those who take up Jesus' word in Matthew chapter five, that blessed are you, happy are you, will not be cut off. They will have a future. They are made pleasing to God by Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Solomon says earlier in this text, in Proverbs 24, he says, the righteous will fall seven times. To us, that seven might seem arbitrary, but seven in the time of Jewish and Hebrew literature was just this number of perfection, this number of fulfillment. And so in other words, what Solomon is not saying is, God's got this and all of your life will be great even though it's hard. He's actually saying that even if your life is perfectly full of suffering and stumbling and falling and affliction and toil, you will rise again. The righteous have resurrection hope. Hope that one day the God who judges will no longer be keeping score, but will someday come to call all bills due. Solomon's dad. King David reminds us of this reality in Psalm chapter 37. And listen to this. In our anxious world, our world is anxious at every turn. Listen to what David says. Fret not yourself. Do you hear Solomon? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is what supplants desiring the evil and envying the wicked. You have two faith decisions in life. To believe that the wicked can provide on your desire or to believe that the God who created the universe, the God who sent his son to die for you, the God who removes your sin as far as the east from the west, the God who promises a resurrected world where every tear is wiped from every eye, that that God might actually grant you desire. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice the noon day. Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. To fear the Lord is to place our trust in the Lord and in his king 
that in his perfect timing, the wicked will be judged. And you might look, you might examine, you might strain to find the wicked and you will find him no more. But in this world, don't we cry, how long? David said thousands of years ago, in a little while, In the book of Revelation, John looks forward. He describes what will happen at the end. And we see this in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. How long, O Lord, As Johnny prayed today, haven't we seen that this week? As Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, don't we long for the Lord to put away wickedness? Taliban officials have instructed women as young as 15 to be wed to Taliban fighters. One journalist said this, ground reports all over say the Taliban is hunting unmarried women, tracking down Shiite Hazros, jailing and torturing Christians to give up info on others. As one source said, it is a reign of terror. One report from ministry workers in the area said the Taliban leaders told church leaders that they know where they are and they know who they are. Another worker in the area said that most Christians he knows are preparing to meet Jesus within the next two weeks. Still another speaks of believers being openly executed in the streets. I spoke to some of our workers in the Middle East. They said many people are unable to communicate what is actually going on because their emails and their phone calls are being monitored. Additionally, there's localized fear that the success of the Taliban is going to cause ISIS and the Taliban to join forces with an exclusive agenda item to eradicate the Church of Christ from the area. This is one relatively small portion of our globe. Fails to mention the state of Christians in China, Somalia, North Korea, Libya, Nigeria, India, Pakistan, Colombia, Mexico. The list can go on and on and on and on. Dear church, be careful what you sing if you are not willing to suffer to sing of Christ our refuge is to acknowledge the need for safety.
To boast in Christ our shield is to feel the blow of the sword. To love Christ the light is to know the chill of darkness. When wicked wages war against your soul, it does so not to afflict your flesh, but to cause your soul to trust in the rewards of wickedness to remove yourself from the fear of the Lord. But those who see the goodness of this God and his king are those who endure. To know the darkness is to know the light. It is to know the hope that will not be crushed. It is to know that the Lord and his king are not passive. That though they tarry from our perspective, judgment comes. Righteousness will be established. After Revelation 6, John's visions continue in Revelation 7. What does the Lord say in Psalm 37? Wait. What does the Lord say in Proverbs 24? Wait. What does the Lord say in Revelation 7 in verse 9? After this I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lord and his King are here. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? Remember, we know who these white-robed people are. Who are they? They're the ones who hoped in the Lord and have been killed. The ones whom wickedness, when we say God will never give you more than you can handle, it's relative. These people robed in white robes got everything they could handle, but not too much to remove their faith. He said to them, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. Where, where might you find this whiteness? in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, for all who are washed, though our blood leaks from our body, those swords are wet with crimson for those who hope in this washed blood of Christ. This is your future hope. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst, is in the midst of the throne, and he will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. What is our hope in the face of wickedness? It is not that it lies a world away. It is that one day it will lie no more. 
that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And for all of us who are dead in our sins, we can be reconciled by the lion, lamb, king. We can find peace to endure when it's hard. We know the future which is ours through grace. Do you have the right hope? We're watching uh, the news with, well, no one watches the news anymore. We're looking at the news on our phones and my son this week saw and heard my wife talking and became anxious and tearful and, and fearful and came into our room at night and we teased out of him his anxiety over this issue. And he asked me a question. It's a question that we might ask Father Solomon and Solomon wants to give you a better answer. He asked, will that happen here? And I could have easily said, no. I don't think it's gonna happen. I hope it's not gonna happen in our lifetime. But God wants to give a bigger hope than that to us. Because the reality is, is what God calls us to do in Psalm 27, what God calls us to do in Proverbs 24 is not just to not fear, but to do good. To actually keep doing the thing that endangers you. To do the hard work of trusting Jesus in the face of a world who wants to see that hard work condemned. I said, Owen, I hope it doesn't happen here. I said, but there are little eight-year-old boys in this world where it is happening there. And the grace of Jesus is so big that we can do hard things and trust the Lord. We live in a country where we have relative freedom. Are you willing to do hard things with that same hope? If that hope is what sustains 12-year-old boys as their fathers are murdered for confessing Christ, might it sustain you to flee wickedness in pornography? in anger, in fear of man, in deceitfulness, in sloth. Why do we have hope? Because we have resurrected bodies. Because wickedness will be judged. Because Christ will come back. That those who come to Jesus in him are saved and those who come apart are sent to judgment. This is a fear that does not fade. This is a light that burns eternal. This is an envy which will not disappoint. Brothers and sisters, the only way we will join and not partner with those who inevitably fall to wickedness is to be joined to the one who has already been judged for us and rise again. The wonderful truth of those who pursue righteousness in Jesus Christ is you might fall once, you might fall twice, you might fall seven times, but you will always rise one more. Are you reconciled to this king? There are two things we all do right now. The first is those who are not reconciled is to repent, is to come and take what you could never earn, but what Christ freely did to remove you from the category of wicked to the wonderful category of being righteous. If that's you, talk to someone here today. For those who have been reconciled to God, do you rely on this king? 
Do you fear the Lord? It is one thing to dream about valiantly dying as a martyr. It is a much harder thing to go home and die to your children, to your wife, and to your roommates. But that is the hope of the wisdom of God. And that is our joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you give us something bigger than our fears. That you give us the fear of the Lord. That is a sober reality that apart from you, we have nothing and can do nothing. But in Jesus Christ, you have done everything for us. Lord, we do ache for those who are suffering on account of your word across the globe. But we also ache for us here who are suffering in different ways with your word. Suffering by being slaves to comfort, refusing to fear the Lord. Suffering from those who see the prospering of the wicked and think, if I could have a little of that plus the comfort of salvation, I'll be great. But Lord, help us not to partner with those who fall, but to partner with Christ who has been raised again for our justification in life. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.